Hi, I'm Steph Lowe, and welcome to Health, Happiness, and Humankind. Each week, I speak with experts from all over the world in the areas of nutrition, microbiome health, environmental sustainability, psychology, meditation, and more. Together, we'll teach you the answers to becoming healthy, happy, and a more conscious human, and why your contribution to the planet truly matters. If you love the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and hit share to send today's episode to a friend or two. And now, without further ado, let's dive in to today's episode. In today's episode of Health, Happiness and Humankind, yes, we have a brand new podcast name and still the most amazing guests, but so many more incredible topics to cover, Ellie and I dissect Irritable Bowel Syndrome, otherwise known as IBS. You will learn more about the diagnosis of IBS and how this can be problematic from a treatment standpoint. We discuss what we typically see in clinic including clients who have undertaken a suite of breath testing, those who have been to see a gastroenterologist, and those who have been told to follow a specific diet lacking in prebiotic fibres long term. We also explore the role of SIBO and the microbiome, the long-term steps required to create optimal gut health, and so much more. As always, team, I'd be so grateful if you could share today's episode with a friend or two, and please come and join the conversation on social media via The Natural Nutritionist and my new personal Instagram page at Steph Lowe. Hi, Ellie, and thank you so much for joining me to have this conversation today. Hi, Steph. So it's a big topic, and I think it's really important that we start with a definition. Because obviously it's a term and certainly an acronym that people are really familiar with. Irritable bowel syndrome or IBS is almost like a household acronym. But let's have a look at defining that first because what's interesting is that IBS is characterized by symptoms including abdominal pain, bloating, alternative alternative between alternating between um, constipation and diarrhea and certainly in most cases to actually receive a diagnosis it's more about the time that this has been going on for because we know that the diagnosis of IBS usually requires that the person has been experiencing abdominal pain or discomfort for at least three days over the course of the last three months. And in some places you see at least one day a week for three months, but the onset of symptoms has been occurring for at least six months prior. Now, certainly what we see in clinic is that the diagnosis is actually quite problematic because what it really is, is a collection of symptoms one, you know about your symptoms because you've been experiencing them for six months or more. But two, there's not really a clear-cut treatment protocol because it, it's not really a diagnosis. It's an absence of other diagnoses. So I think that can be quite problematic. And it's certainly what we see with clients in clinic. And I know you have that sort of first-hand experience with, um, or second-hand experience with lots of your clients too, Ellie. 
Yeah. Well, you're right. I've got that first-hand experience of, <laughs> of getting that diagnosis of IBS. Um, but yeah, absolutely that experience of working with clients who are just almost, almost at the point of tears by the time they come into clinic because like you highlighted, people are aware of their symptoms. You know, people are aware of how long they've been experiencing the bloating or the, the inconsistent bowel motions and um, that they don't necessarily need someone to tell them what the label is for the symptoms. They want to understand what's causing the symptoms so they can start to do something about it. And what I often see in clinic is that individuals may have worked with another health professional, often, hopefully and often it's a gastroenterologist, um, and they may have done some work already to exclude what could be um, some, some common contributors to IBS-like symptoms. So they may have done, um, you know, breath testing to rule out fructose malabsorption or lactose malabsorption, or perhaps they've done some stool testing to rule out um, something like a parasite. But Often that's where, oh, actually, no, sorry, there's one more thing that might be trialed, which is an exclusion diet. So the exclusion of, of FODMAPs for a period of um, between four to six weeks. But often if the symptoms, or often if that, if that testing doesn't, doesn't give any answers as to what's contributing to the symptoms, and, and often those, t- those tests don't always give answers, the, the next step is then to, to do a colonoscopy um, or, or for the, the professional to tell their client that they've got IBS. Um, and that's where the role of somebody like you and I comes into place because, as we know, there's, there's so much more that could be contributing to IBS-like symptoms um, aside from the, the malabsorption of, of those specific carbohydrates uh, as and aside from parasites, so yeah, the diagnosis of IBS is a really challenging one because it it doesn't help to get to the root cause of the issue and therefore doesn't help with symptom relief. Yeah, and what I'm actually seeing more commonly is even before someone might see a gastroenterologist, they've been chatting to their doctor about their symptoms, and that's often where the FODMAP or the, if we just expand the acronym, the fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyol discussion is is had because there's this belief that IBS is often triggered by the consumption of these foods. So then what's often happened or what's often happening is the client is then told to remove these foods. And that's kind of as far as the conversation goes. And that bothers me for a few reasons. One, it's an intervention, so it's a, if it's if it's followed, it's supposed to be followed for a fairly short period of time, maybe you know, eight weeks or twelve weeks, and and two, telling someone just not to eat FODMAPs is not helpful because that that doesn't mean anything to almost mm. anyone. It's quite a yes. broad list of foods, and everyone's individual triggers are very different. So, mm. just avoiding. FODMAPs might mean that you're often avoiding foods that you don't need to because they're not all your triggers. Um, And for a lot of people, it's not sustainable. So whilst we may use it initially for some symptom resolution, it's still not the treatment because it's not what you're going to be doing forever. 
We also know that eliminating a lot of these FODMAPs long-term is problematic because it can starve your microbiome because they obviously are the fermentable carbohydrates that can feed our beneficial strains and promote the proliferation of the anti-inflammatory microbes that we want to see making up our gut microbiome. So it's not a treatment. It's a, it's a, for me, it's almost like a frustrating suggestion because it almost never comes with enough information. And so many people I meet have been doing low FODMAP for years and A, it hasn't fixed anything and B, it's probably causing more issues long-term. Well, I was just going to say, it's, it's certainly not fixed anything. And if anything, it makes the problem worse. Um, as, as you highlighted, like it's a short-term intervention, which is used to create symptom relief. And there needs to be a lot of coaching along the way. If, if, a, if a low FODMAP diet is prescribed, that can't be the end of the conversation. The, co- the, the coaching needs to be around about, um, you know, first of all, what foods are high in, in FODMAPs? What amount of those foods that are high in FODMAPs could you potentially tolerate? How long do you need to eliminate the FODMAPs for? Um, then how do you start reintroducing these higher FODMAP foods and also what's done in the interim to help you start to tolerate these foods better? Because as you said, if, if, you, if you're restricting these fibre-containing foods, then you're making the problem worse because you're starving the beneficial bacteria, which eventually are going to be the things that help to pull you out of the hole. You know, that beneficial bacteria is what's going to, in conjunction with the fibre, create the short-chain fatty acids, which is what's going to help to heal the, the mucosal lining of the gut and, and start to help you to become more tolerant of these, these FODMAPs. So it's sort of like this cycle and so if you take out the FODMAPs and don't look at a strategy for what to do in the interim and what to do when reintroducing them or don't look at a strategy at all for reintroducing them then the symptoms are just going to get worse and worse and worse because the problem's not going to be resolved yeah um the the reduction of FODMAPs can, can very much help with, symptoms, help with symptoms, which is a great first step. But for, for you and I, I'm, I'm sure you're exactly the same, it's then this big pointer into, okay, what is going on under the surface, which is meaning that the, re, the removal of these FODMAP-containing foods is helping, you know, and, and that that first and obvious one that you go to is a case of SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth because we know from the research that around about 50%, and I see different numbers quoted, but the latest figure I've seen is 50%. So around about 50% of IBS sufferers have actually got a case of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is that situation whereby bacteria which we usually find living, you know, happily in the the large intestine has been able to make its way up to the small intestine, which would usually be a pretty barren area when it comes to bacteria. So Mm -hmm. bacteria overgrow there in that small intestine and cause the the reactivity to the the FODMAP-containing foods or the specific carbohydrate-containing foods. 
Yeah. And that's a really good point because again, when we just go low FODMAP, it's like the tip of the iceberg and we've forgotten about the bulk of the iceberg sitting underneath the water. And, you know, I often think about this because IBS has been around for decades, but SIBO hasn't. So there are people who have been branded this label or this diagnosis with no solution, no treatment. Um, And yeah, half of them could have been treating SIBO, but we didn't have the science that we now have. So I often see that link being forgotten about because there's a conventional way to sort of quote unquote manage IBS. And then along the way, we start to uncover SIBO and dysbiosis that we'll talk about today as well. And yeah, we've got to connect the dots because you mentioned a gastroenterologist. So, you know, what we see is Certainly, if the client has gone to their GP and had that conversation and let's say, you know, things haven't improved, for some reason, the next step isn't a nutritionist or a dietitian. It's often a gastroenterologist. And I think that's important because certainly you want to make sure there's no structural issue that could be causing a problem. But we're not looking at the ecosystem. We're not looking at the microbiome at that potential underlying cause. And then for many people, you know, that nearly always the scope comes back clear and they're still left, you know, confused and, and really quite unsure as to how they're going to get rid of their symptoms. And that's, that's a problem. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is nice to, it is, it is nice to, to have that, that scope to rule out anything significantly untoward and anything structural. But if, if the problem is um, IBS, if it's SIBO, if it's dysbiosis, then it's not going to be picked up in a scope. So the scope is almost a, a, a futile exercise. Um, and and there is a there's a big area between IBS symptoms and and having a scope. And if nothing is tried in between, then yeah, the scope is a big jump and almost can be more detrimental because of the the impact on um, on the gut in the process of of doing the scope. So you go if you wanted to say something. Oh, no, I was just like, yeah, just thinking about the prep diet. It's horrific for a lot of people. Oh. They, they find that the hardest part of it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And there's no conversations about probiotics or anything like that um, as a follow-up to, to having the scope done. Not to um, mention how you might do it without eating white bread. Like the, the diet that people are handed is still so 1980s. I think we could really be looking at how we could still be obviously clearing out the bowel properly but not just relying on such refined foods for a period of time. Yeah, it's quite horrible to think. Um, But what I was going to say is that um, sometimes there is this process of elimination in the early stages to determine what's causing the IBS-like symptoms and and some of those go-tos from the doctor will be the and this is sometimes yeah at the level of the doctor or sometimes at the level of the gastroenterologist, will be the, the low FODMAP, FODMAP diet. And if they're a bit more forward thinking, it will be the, the breath testing, so looking at fructose and looking at lactose breath testing. Now, SIBO is also diagnosed via breath test like most of the time. That's how I would, I would look to be diagnosing SIBO. Um, but it's not a breath test that's routinely carried out alongside fructose and lactose breath testing. So um, I guess more just a pointer for, for people listening who are trying to try to come up with answers. If you haven't had that SIBO breath testing done um, and you've done lactose and fructose and they've come back negative, 
then that SIBO does need to be connect, does need to be considered. Mm. And also because the treatment then is going to be different, right? Like um, the, the, the treatment for a, a SIBO um, caused IBS, or I put it the other way, the treatment for a case of IBS, which is due to an underlying condition of SIBO, you know, the steps that will be put in place might be quite different if that SIBO is diagnosed versus if there's something else going on, like if it's a parasite or if it's dysbiosis there in the large intestine, right? Like we know that in in cases of SIBO, you know, it might, you might not always react to thing or respond to treatment, certain treatment modes well. Um, things like slippery elm bark powder um, or other things we might use in in classic case of IBS might not be so helpful in the early stages of treating SIBO. So getting clear on what's contributing to the symptoms then allows real clarity in the treatment protocol as well. Yeah, well, I guess that's why testing is so important because as we've been discussing, IBS isn't really telling you a lot. It's just excluding other things and you know, obviously, it's a collection of symptoms that sort of qualifies you for that diagnosis. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it often is for people quite quite a journey and quite a long, expensive process that I feel could be simplified and shortened, you know, if we have this knowledge. And not a lot of doctors are doing sort of breath testing, as you sort of alluded to, and certainly not SIBO testing. So, in an ideal world, I think we'll see either, you know, doctors starting to perhaps refer their clients to nutritionists or dietitians. But while we've got the sort of system that we've currently got, um, you know, let's talk about, yeah, exactly that, getting more information rather than just um, putting up with it because a lot of people do. They're put up with the symptoms for so long. Yeah, and um and if you're not familiar with the work of naturopaths, nutritionists, and dietitians, then and and you're working with a with a gastroenterologist or doctor who's not pointing you in that direction, then you can be left for years trying to manage with your manage with your symptoms. I mean, uh, you know, like I said before, I've got firsthand experience of trying to pick apart symptoms and um, and do you know exclusions and all of, exclusion diets and all of that sort of thing, but. I can't tell you how frequently I have clients coming to the clinic who have been through the exact same thing. It's, it's, a weekly, it's, a, it's a weekly scenario whereby somebody is coming for assistance because they just want some answers as to what's causing their digestive discomfort. And they may have already done some testing, but it's not giving them any answers as to what's really going on. So it, it, as part of that process of elimination, um, some tests are really helpful, the fructose, the lactose, the SIBO. Um, and beyond that, then looking at um, the, the microbiome, so the large intestine, looking at what's going on in there can also be really helpful. So looking at whether there's any dysbiosis present, which could be leading to, and dysbiosis being that um, imbalance or lack of um, beneficial bacteria in the large intestine, which could be leading to, you know, inflammation or increased intestinal permeability, disruption of the mucosal lining, um, and also whether or not there's any pathogens present there as well, which could be causing the IBS-like symptoms. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what I think for a lot of people um, can be really helpful is to take a moment to go back in time and think about when all their symptoms first started. Because if it is, like, let's say it's your typical overseas trip to Bali or India or somewhere similar where you got sick and you've never been the same since, that can give you a lot more information than just what an IBS diagnosis can give. For so other people, true. if it's like um, you're, um, you know, having a C-section or major abdominal surgery or having, you know, a severe traumatic event like stress, which we'll also talk about, if, if that is where your symptoms started, then each one of those can give you a lot more information because we know that certainly like abdominal surgery, C-section, um, things like that are, can often be a trigger for SIBO because it impacts the migrating motor complex, so that structural damage. But, you know, stress can be a, anything. Like it can impact the gut in many different ways. But I think it's really important to think about when it started and maybe finish the sentence, I've never been the same since and then look at the timeline from there because it could be decades ago. Yeah, it's so it's so relevant and and as the practitioner getting an idea as to, you know, I've never felt the same since and and when things started to unravel helps you to get an idea as to what might be going on and also the severity of of what might be going on. You know, if it's a if it's a 10 years, if it's 10 years of IBS symptoms, then you'd be considering that, all right, there might be some significant dysbiosis and some fairly persistent um, increased intestinal permeability. But if it's, if it's more short term, then, um, you know, it might suggest that things can be turned around somewhat more quickly. Mm. Um, Great, great example of a client just just last week, actually. Um, her symptoms all really started to come about when or after she was treated for a parasite. So after yeah, after antibiotic treatment of the parasite. Now, my hypothesis, and we're, you know, we're in the process of, of doing testing, but my hypothesis is that following the, the, the treatment of, of antibiotics, there wasn't enough work done to help recover her microbiome from that. So there's a complete lack of, complete lack of beneficial bacterial, potential complete lack of beneficial bacteria, I should say, uh, which has had a flow-on effect to the integrity of her, of her, um, her, of her gut lining and her ability to, to tolerate um, specific carbohydrates mm. and antibiotics is one i didn't mention like that's obviously the, the big one how could i forget um mm. for a lot of people especially those that have unfortunately had multiple courses yeah that caused the complete unraveling and um for whatever reason their gut didn't bounce back they weren't supported enough to facilitate that mm. and yeah which is that- which isn't surprising because if you think about who's administering the antibiotics, if it's not, if it's not like, it's not, if it's not a functional health professional, if it is the GP, for example, there's, there's a very good chance that there is no conversation around um, probiotic requirements or dietary considerations following a round of antibiotics. So it's, it is no surprise that they might not 
the individual might not bounce back very well from having a course of antibiotics. Mm. Um, I was also going to build on that a little in that it, it can be really helpful asking that question of I've never felt the same since, but that's not to say it can't, it can't occur or, um, you know, dysbiosis and SIBO can't occur in people where they can't recall that time because obviously there's the influence of sort of low level steady exposure to the NSAIDs or the oral contraceptive pill, which is another huge trigger or ongoing use of proton pump inhibitors, you know, all of these things, which, you may not be able to specifically put on a timeline and say, I haven't felt the same since I started taking the contraceptive pill at the age of 15, but all of these things which over time can contribute to the, the worsening state of the gut microbiome. Yeah, very good point. And it, it's often a lot of things. <laughs> it's often a lot of yeah. things over decades and then, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back is that final event where the symptoms really became quite prominent and obviously um, really quite debilitating for many people. So, yeah, just maybe just doing a little case history on yourself and just thinking about any pharmaceutical intervention, including antibiotics, any major life stress that is, of course, going to impact your nervous system and your microbiome, any major surgeries, having your appendix out, C-section, and putting lots of things down if there are a number of events that could be, in, can, could be contributing to it, a bit of a yeah. timeline. And then, obviously, um, you know, the next steps are looking at what we can do to get rid of those symptoms once and for all. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the timelining is so important. Like Steph, how, how many times have you met with somebody in clinic and the timelining that you do with them is the first time that they've actually started to look at their symptoms and when things started to unravel. And, um, it's, it's not to say that uh, people are, um, doing the wrong thing by themselves, but it's just not that, that first thought that people have to sit, to sit down and, and timeline when things started to, to go wrong. And that's where the consultation becomes really helpful and really important. Before, before doing some of the testing that we've been talking about, you know, breath testing, stool testing, um, or even whilst all of that testing is taking place, there's also some really important just um, considerations and conversations to be had around eating behaviours and how people eat, are eating and also how their day-to-day lifestyle um, behaviours, mood, thought processes could be impacting their digestion and therefore their susceptibility to IBS-like symptoms. You know, how often is that concept of slowing down and eating more mindfully, just mind-blowing for somebody who's got IBS, um, but it can actually make a real difference. So if you're, if you're not taking care of your eating behaviours, so let's say you are um, in a state, and, state of, of high alert or another way that you could frame it is to say that you're in a, in a state of sympathetic dominance whereby that sympathetic nervous system is... is is the dominant one, um, your digestive 
functions and processes are really going to be deprioritized. So production of hydrochloric acid, digestive enzymes are going to be deprioritized. So right there, just the state in which you're in when you eat can impact your ability to digest food. And if your digestion is impaired, then of course there's going to be increased risk of pain, discomfort, gas, bloating, um, and altered bowel motions. So something as simple as considering what state are you in when you eat is, is, is something that needs to be done um, when you're trying to, to really pick apart what's contributing to your IBS symptoms and, of course, improve the underlying um, contributor as well. I couldn't agree more. And it's often the first conversation that you and I have. But imagine if it was the first conversation that was had initially, like with the first practitioner, whether it was the doctor or the gastroenterologist, like we're forgetting the foundations. We're also forgetting that almost every human's a little bit sympathetic dominant, if not the majority. And um, food has become a low priority. So food has become that thing that we think about doing quickly while we're multitasking emails, social media, driving, you know, commuting, whatever it might be. And we've, we've not created, you know, appointments with ourselves to have time to eat, to be able to sit still. And so therefore, these digestive issues are so common. But yeah, how many times have we had a client who's resolved the majority of their symptoms and we haven't even got to talking about, you know, macros or calories or probiotics or any supplement? Yeah, yeah, or out-of-pocket testing and that sort of stuff. No testing Um, at this stage even, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and this also, um, I guess, directs us in the conversation of the gut-brain axis and how more broadly um, mood and stress can impact your susceptibility for IBS. And sometimes this conversation is had at the level of the doctor. Um, I've had clients who've have sort of told me about conversations they've had with their doctor and the doctor has said, are you stressed? Is your stress causing your IBS? And I appreciate the sentiment behind that question because, you know, perhaps a doctor that's done a little bit of research into IBS might know that stress is a contributor. But if there's no further discussion, if it's literally that one-line question, the answer from the person sitting on the other side of the table might be no because they might think, well, no, I I can sleep at night and uh, I'm not that stressed but they're not actually thinking about like constant day-to-day just sympathetic dominance. Like you said, most of us in the Western world are predisposed to being in a more sympathetic dominant state because just sitting in traffic, being stuck at the lights, being late for work, having phone calls on end, having an inbox that's overflowing, having children that <laughs> currently are you know, learning from home, all of that stuff can put you in a state of sympathetic dominance and you might not think, I'm stressed, because you might just be adapting to all of those things, but still there's this underlying state of high alert, which is taking away from your digestive capacity. And so there needs to be. Mm, go on. I was just going to say there needs to be a more a, a, a broader discussion around what actual stress is. You know, it's that hormonal cascade which and an altered function, which is the stress that we're talking about that will impact digestion. 
Yeah. And it doesn't need to, it doesn't actually even need to be chronic because I still think about, um, obviously I'm practicing virtually at the moment. So life's a little bit different, but say on my clinic days, if I've got lots of clients and, you know, my lunch break is shortened for, you know, running over with clients or whatever might be happening, then I still feel like my digestion's not that great. So like years ago, I got into the habit of just having liquid lunches, whether it was a smoothie in summer or a soup in winter, because I just felt like that suited me much better on my clinic days when I am so back to back. And that doesn't feel like the definition of stress, but my body's in a little bit of fight or flight because I've got a lot of people to look after and, and jobs to do. So, you know, it can be just that, or certainly it can be a lot more chronic for lots of reasons, including what's going on in the world right now. Just that simple acknowledgement that stress is a spectrum and at any level it can impact your gut and contribute to symptoms. So for me, it was just a little bit of bloating, nothing crazy, but for other people, it can be a whole host of those typical gastro gastro symptoms that could be avoided with mindful eating and reprioritizing food and making time for your meals. Yeah. So I'm imagining all of, like all of these people after listening to this podcast, you know, sitting down and sitting up straight and deep and breathing deeply and taking, you know, time between their mouthfuls um, to find out what the dif- what the difference is like when you eat in a relaxed and um, slower paced because th- there is definitely a difference as you've noticed and, and I always notice within myself as well. For sure. Um, another one of the eating behaviours that I often try and dial in on straight away is the frequency of eating mm-hmm. um, and... Of, of course, the health and wellness industry, of which we are a part of, but the broader health and wellness industry for many years has sort of supported this idea of eating little and often to quote unquote keep the, the metabolism and that, that, that metabolic fire burning. Um, so a lot of, and let's, let's, let's narrow it down because a lot of females, a lot of my clients that have got IBS are females sort of between that age of like 20 and and 60 and probably all exposed to that message of eating little amounts and frequently. Um, That actually contributes to the risk of IBS-like symptoms because that constant eating, so, you know, eating every two or three hours doesn't allow the the stomach time to to really empty contents before it's then dealt with the next, next meal or snack. So, Actually, just being really mindful of how frequently you're eating can have a huge impact on your digestive capacity and therefore reducing risk of the you know the symptoms of bloating and flatulence and and discomfort and of course, eating less frequently you know you, you've then got to start to change your rituals and patterns when it comes to building your meals. Um, but that's not, that's not change that's unsurmountable. And that's sort of the stuff that we talk about in consultation, isn't it? So how can you set yourself up? So you aren't looking to eat every two to three hours, but rather how can you set yourself up? So you're looking to eat every four hours or maybe every five hours, and then actually giving your stomach an opportunity to do its job in its entirety before it gets the next task to do. Absolutely. And people find that really easy once they learn how. It's just the habit of grazing, which we've been told for many years, without that awareness that it can be so problematic for the gut because we don't have that rest and digest, as you said, and especially where there is SIBO and that structural damage to the migrating motor complex, like Mm -hmm. snacking is the enemy there. But it, Mm -hmm. it is for a lot of 
typical IBS symptoms. So yeah, meal frequency has to be a big part of the conversation. But of course, that happens with the right nutrient density. So it really does start with building your plate. I love that. Yeah, definitely. And of course, building a plate, there might be some exclusions that we need to look at in the early straight stages of managing IBS. Um, as we've highlighted, you know, there might be some exclusion or um, some specificity around how much there is in the way of FODMAP containing foods. But yeah, like just um, the simplicity of building your plate correctly um, will will set you up for appetite control and, and potentially symptom relief almost immediately. Mm. Yeah. I love that. Is there any other things that you would um, uh, test in the early stages? I'm not um, sort of diagnostic testing, but any sort of lifestyle strategies or exclusions or anything like that that you would be trialling or testing in an individual with IBS before you've got more clinical test results back? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it's worthwhile having a deeper conversation about food triggers because for a lot of people, whether whether they've had the low FODMAP suggestion or been trialing it or whether they've just worked out that it's bread like a food more than a sort of a, a group specifically, at least most people have one of the above. And so it's about workshopping often as the practitioner yeah, you're really sort of workshopping and brainstorming. What are the triggers? Um, And obviously in almost all cases, it's not that you can't eat that food. It's just that you've got an upper limit. So avoiding that upper limit and working on, you know, food variety so that you're not eating too much of the same thing and perpetuating the problem, but coming up with a plan if you are removing foods, because whilst I don't believe anyone needs to eat gluten ever again, nearly every other food you're going to want to have a plan to retest and retesting that food is going to be a good barometer of your improvement because if you cannot eat onions or if you cannot eat pears right now, that's fine. Of course, as we've been saying all along, remove that in the short term, but putting a timeline into place of retesting that food. And of course, if you do then tolerate it, that's a great sign of your improvement. Or if you don't, you just move it to the bottom of the list and come back to it. Kind of like how you would introduce foods to little ones. Like you still want to keep testing it and working out when the microbiome is in the right place to be able to tolerate those foods. Because I don't believe in long-term elimination of certainly vegetables when we're talking about FODMAPs. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and also like ensuring that when you, when you do look at your timeline for reintroducing, you appreciate the work that needs to be in the meantime to in order, in order to allow that reintroduction to take place. So it isn't just a matter of, you know, excluding for, I'm just plucking out a number here, but ex- excluding for, for 30 days and then reintroducing you know, you've got to take care of the underlying issues, which is where the the, the clinical testing can come, become really helpful. So you know whether the underlying issue is dysbiosis or if it's SIBO or if it's parasites um, or perhaps a combination of all of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get to work on those before you then start the reintroduction protocol. Yeah, for sure. So before we talk about testing, I just wanted to have a separate conversation about probiotics because we talk about testing all the time and most people know my mantra is test, don't guess. 
But Mm. there are actually, or there is actually some pretty incredible research on specific probiotic strains being really beneficial for IBS, right? Yeah. So let's say someone's in the position where they can't test, they can't afford it. Who knows? It, it could be a number of reasons why, or maybe it's just about what can we do first to rebalance mm. the microbiome. We're not, you know, we're not necessarily looking for what's missing from the gut in this case. We know what transient species are going to be really helpful. So most of the literature at this point of time is on bifidobacterium infantis. So that's clinically proven to really help reduce symptoms of IBS. Um, And there is also VSL3, which is VisBiome. It's eight different strains. So it does contain the infantis, but it also is very diverse in containing um, some species of lactobacillus and bifido. Um, and I believe Streptococcus thermophilus as well. So there's some really good clinical trials, very well studied for treating IBS in both adults and children. So for some Mm. people, especially those that have spent a lot of money on different tests, whether it is more structural up until this point in time, working with a practitioner to find the right probiotic could make a huge difference straight off the bat once you've made the first, you know, food and lifestyle, food behavioural changes that we've been discussing. Mm. I also um, I also add lactobacillus plantarum to that list, which um, I think is in the VSL3. I could be incorrect there. Um, I haven't yeah. looked at it. Yeah. Um, I also add that to the list, especially in cases of IBS constipation dominant Mm -hmm. cases um before the testing is before we've got testing back so that's another one that like you said can be considered as as an addition rather than addressing sort of underlying dysbiosis you used as an addition and transient strain to help with symptoms yeah, definitely. And that brings up a, a point in that we know that IBS could be constipation, it could be diarrhea, it could be both, yeah. right? And so you will actually need slightly different strains based on whether you are, you know, IBSC or IBSD or gosh, three, four, seven, like there's so many different types now coming out. Yeah. So that's, that's, you know, where practitioner guidance is, of course, going to be really helpful. So yeah don't go and buy expensive probiotics. Like it's certainly about getting the right support and getting the right information and understanding, you know, your treatment because there isn't one way. But I did just want to mention that there are clinical, like, you know, clinically proven strains and an abundance of clinical trials there that wouldn't necessarily need further testing. Yeah, which I think is really great information to give people um, that, there, there is some there is some intervention we can put in without having to do testing, which might be incredibly helpful, um, but work with someone who can help you understand which one of those tested probiotic strains is best for you because, yeah, you don't want to. Um, you don't want to spend money on the wrong product um, and then have to, you know, go and get the next product. You may as well work with someone who can point you in the right direction straight away. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Um, some other things that I might introduce early on um, to help get some relief as well um, is like thinking about food as medicine. So turmeric, which is a anti antioxidant, 
as well as an antimicrobial can nice and naturally be included in the diet. So something as simple as like a good quality turmeric powder used in food can be a nice place to start as well as part of the healing process. Um, and then chamomile. Chamomile I like to use um, in somebody that has sort of um, uh, like spasms and discomfort, sort of the anti-inflammatory nature and the, the calming nature of chamomile and even just something like a chamomile tea can be something nice to include as well. Yeah, I love it. I love prescribing teas because a lot of people, a lot of people don't want to take supplements and they certainly don't want to take too many things. And I'm a massive believer in that. Like none of our clients walk away with, you know, more than three supplements, if any, depending on their case, of course. And um, there's so much you can do with herbs and they, they don't need to be disgusting tinctures and expensive. They can be teas as long as they're prescribed in the right sort of dosage and frequency they can make a big difference and i'm finding from a compliance point of view people are loving that it's also why turmeric's great and down the line certainly not initially when you're looking for therapeutic doses of probiotics you need something that's been you know proven in its cfu and um strain specificity but down the line looking at you know food-based or beverage-based probiotics people love that as well because you can integrate your life and it's a lot more sustainable and affordable and everything's about compliance like you only get results if you're consistent so having a strategy that long term is so important because let's say you drop all the balls again it's likely that your symptoms will come back so you need a long-term plan even though initially it'll be more acute per se you still need to have a plan forever to be nourishing and um, looking after your microbiome yeah precisely and you know consider that whatever got you in the position of having IBS symptoms, you can't revert back to, right? So if what you got, what got you in the position was years and years of refined foods and being on hormone replacement and and rounds of antibiotics, like you can't go back there. There has to be a long-term plan. It's almost like a lifestyle change, not just a dietary change, which is going to help see you clear of, of IBS symptoms for a lifetime. And that, that shouldn't be seen as a negative thing. In actual fact, it should be seen as a real positive thing because the shifts that you make for you know, a lifetime of being IBS symptom free, um, the shifts that will generally help you to be healthy for the long term. Um, and that's the goal, right? Like creating long-term, sustainable, abundant health. Well, I think that's what people are realizing now. Like, Nearly always when we've got a client um, and they list their goals to us at the natural nutritionist, they're really focused on one element of health, if not more. And let's say they might want to lose weight, but their first goal is health. And that, that's mm. the shift that I've seen definitely in the last few years. Mm. And I love that because, yeah. yeah, you have to have health as the first priority and you can't have anything else without that. So, yeah having that maybe it's number one health, number two gut health, you know, like whatever that might be. And then really focusing on what your priorities are and working with someone knowing that you're going to be making these changes lifelong because it's not like mm. a, a, when will I stop doing this? When will I stop eating real food? When will I stop, you know, um, using food-based probiotics? Like it should be yeah. a way for you to 
learn what you learn once. <laughs> you know, yeah. not learn yeah. the hard way more than once. <laughs> yeah. And that might not be what everybody wants to hear. You know, no, this is a lifestyle change <laughs> rather than a short term intervention. Yeah. Um, but that's cool. And that's why I, I love this, this role of being a more um, holistic and functional nutritionist because it's about helping people to be better for the long term in every, in every facet, their health and mindset, all of that. Um, it's a really nice, it's a really nice space to work from. And rather look, most than, people, go on. Mm. No, I was just, I was just going to say rather than, you know, I did my work experience, you know, in, in my uni days working in a hospital setting and I just knew instantly that that was not why I was wanting to work in the field of nutrition, you know, not wanting to prescribe sustagen to people who were in an ICU ward. That's a very different form of using food as medicine. Yes, I had the same epiphany, which is why I never studied dietetics specifically. But I, what I was going to say is that what I'm loving about the food space, at least in our little bubble, Ellie, is that people... Um, you know, they feel so good when they make the initial changes that they're a convert forever. That's why we get so many, you know, internal referrals of our clients sending us their loved ones because they feel so good. Like they literally feel born again that they really want everyone else in their life to experience the same. So I think that's incredible because we've lost our way in the West and we've had a rough sort of 50 years (laughs) of eating the wrong kind of foods and counting calories and stripping fats and moving to be like, you know, high degrees of human interference, but we're making our way back to how our great grandparents ate. And that makes sense. Like you don't need a degree in nutrition to, to do that. And so people can really relate to that and certainly experience firsthand. Um, They're nearly always going to be doing that forever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like we could probably talk about IBS more and more and more, um, but we, we are limited by time. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't looked at today? Look, we've covered definitely the, the priority. I feel there'll probably be a lot of questions that come out of today because it is so individual. It's so, it's like every single person would have a different experience of IBS if they are a sufferer. So I would love to get questions from our audience today and certainly if there's any sort of sub areas that you'd like to learn more about, I'd love to hear from you and we can jump back on in a future episode and explore IBS through that lens. So please do reach out to us um, at The Natural Nutritionist or on Instagram and um, it's been great to have this conversation with you today, Ali. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Thank you, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the 